0: You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, I know a lot of you are uh, newish today, uh, kind of here for dedications. Welcome to Hub City. Uh, we're really glad you're here. But um, if you didn't know, we are in our second week into a series through First John. Um, and uh, again, the encouragement, especially if you're a part of Hub City, is like, please don't let this be the only time you're hearing about First John throughout the weeks. So let's just be a people that are marinating in this, opening it daily um, and really reading the words of God. But we're in the second uh, week of it. Um, and again, we looked last week at kind of the content, for a lot of John's writings is he's, he's responding to some of the false teachings that are going around uh, within the New Testament church now about who Jesus was, uh, specifically that he in his own flesh, his flesh was not God, uh, but that he just had this divine spirit within his body, which obviously has effects to now who Jesus would be for us today. Um, so again, that's one of the main false teachings. He's also not writing just to refute this false teaching. He's also just writing good theology, trying to bolster Christian's faith uh, in the early church of saying, Hey, remember who Christ is um, and that he's not just this flesh with God spirit, but he was fully God uh, and fully man. As we looked last week, there's this danger in leaving God to just the spiritual realm and not the physical realm. To leaving God as only having authority in heaven, but not on earth. If he has no authority on earth, then he's not ruler of all. Okay, But Jesus affirmed this, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. before he gave his disciples the Great Commission, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, he has complete authority and right to be savior of all God's creation, right? Just right from the beginning where he created the heavens and the earth, now he has all authority on the heavens and the earth. So now there's implications to this. If Jesus was God in both spirit and flesh, there are life applications that are real realities today for anyone who is in Christ Jesus, and I'm excited to get into those. It's what John will be moving on to today from last week, and we'll dive into, um, and I would like to pray one last time before we dive into it today, so if you join me in that, let's pray. God, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word, Lord. The power is in your word, and we just want to proclaim that today, um, and be with us as we hear your word today, Lord, and beyond any human speech, let it just reach down into the depths of our heart and change us and mold us into the people you created us to be. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so our main passage today, verse 5, as we just read of chapter 1 of 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, we talked about this last week, but the scriptures often paint this world as kind of darkness because of sin. uses that language of darkness. It's inside us. It's all around us. There's this darkness, but God is this light that shines, and the darkness cannot overcome the light. In fact, this light is growing, and darkness is shrinking back as Jesus is making all things new, because in him there is no darkness. There's no shadow side of God. So, as image bearers of this, there also should not be darkness masquerading as light in our lives. John, when he writes this, he sneaks in some good theology of Jesus here, okay? Remember, back to the gospel writing of John, Jesus is interacting with scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus himself claims this, John 18:12. And again, Joseph, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "'I am the light of the world.'" Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, according to John 8 and now 1 John 1.5, if Jesus is the light of the world and God is light, then Jesus in the flesh is God. Okay, John just kind of sneaks it in here. Not just that he teaches about the light, but that he actually is the light. Remember, John is writing to Christians not only to bolster their faith, but also to write against these false teachings coming up about Jesus and what it means to follow God. One of them we looked at last week that we just talked about is that Jesus was not in the flesh, God himself, but only in his spirit. What is done in the flesh, this is then what it teaches, what done in the flesh does not matter as long as our spirit is one with God. There's many applications to this. In this false teaching, then, If flesh is meaningless, then there's no moral code for physical action. Okay, can you see some problems with that? In fact, even if there was immoral behavior, it still would not result in sin. Even beyond that, you could be without sin if you had the right knowledge about God. We talked about last week, this is the beginning of what would be known as Gnosticism. Okay, the early Gnostics were starting to Plague the early church with these teachings, and actually remove themselves from the New Testament church to then teach different doctrine. And the leader of these, the the they believe that knowledge was key to salvation. So whatever actions were done by their flesh was meaningless. They thought their actions had no effect on right standing with God. Now we can learn a lot from how John responds to this. Okay, he doesn't just go off on a rant or bashing about how awful this teaching is or anything. He actually just does what a sensible theologian would do. He teaches good theology, which is great. So verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so you're saying this, this is a falsehood. We're not practicing the truth. Now, this isn't uncommon even today, right? We all probably know someone or maybe we've been this person that, that believes in God and says they follow him, but then their life looks nothing like Jesus's, right? There's no fruit in their life that would suggest they follow the God of the Scriptures. And actually, we're going to get more into that in the next couple weeks. John gets more specific. But verse 7, John says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. I put these points up today, we're usually not like a point sermon thing, but I think there's three points we can get out of 1 John today, just a side note. So the first point is the fruit of walking in the light here is fellowship with one another and cleansing in the blood of Christ. Okay, so to combat the people that say they follow God, but there's no fruit in their life, this is just one of the things John says, if you walk in the light, there will be fellowship with one another and the cleansing in the blood of Christ. Okay. Okay. And look at that, being cleansed from all sin by the blood of Christ. Not just the bad ones, not just the big ones, all sin. And if you sing, I want to walk in the light as he is in the light, and DC Talk does not just come into your mind. I mean, I don't know if you're a born-again Christian, but it's an incredible line, right? And it kind of makes the WWJD bracelets not so crazy, right? To walk in the way of Jesus as he modeled for us. Not to replace Jesus but I've heard this phrase before, to live how Jesus would live if he were you. So we're back to the reminder that if Jesus is God and God is light, then the way of Jesus is the way of the light. And the fruit of belief in this and walking in the light is fellowship with one another. That shouldn't be missed. That shouldn't just be like, oh yeah, of course, like that's a big deal. It's not just this individual belief system that you can go do on your own. It's fellowship with one another. It's meant to be this way. It's not also people stumbling around in darkness, but people where the same light can easily find each other, right? Because in the darkness, you're just grasping what is around me. I don't know, right? These false teachers in John's day, finding themselves in this darkness, this blindness. We'll talk about this again next week. Constantly quarreling with those around them, puffing themselves up because they have this knowledge, a special knowledge that nobody else has. This is divisive. That's not unifying. That's not fellowship. This is not the fruit of one who walks in the light. And of course, this walking in the light cannot happen unless the surrender to Christ and recognizing him as Savior, which results in, as John says, the cleansing of all sins. Recognizing our Savior, being cleansed from our sin is the way of the light. Not saying, as some false teachers are saying, that they are saved because they are without sin, because the flesh doesn't matter. Well, John responds to this, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So saying you don't have sin, it's not salvation, it's actually saying you're deceiving yourselves. He, in fact, he continues, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is point two from John, okay, of walking in the light, the fruit of this. There's confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. Okay, this is so fascinating. John's reasoning for what it looks like to to walk in the light is not to be sinless, but it is to confess sin. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Confession is the speaking of the state of your heart. Okay, The humble act of confession is the recognition that our heart is deceitful and we are unable to save ourselves. And there is confidence that every time we practice this confession, He will forgive us because He alone is faithful and just. He is the one who will time and time and time again intercede for us. Now, there's a really big distinction I want to make here. And hear me out. Confessing our sins does not save us. Okay, hear me out. Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins saves us. That is salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. But confessing our sins is recognizing that we cannot save ourselves, that Christ alone saved us from our sins, and he is continually saving us from our sins. Now can I teach you guys some things today? This maybe it's weird, maybe you're like, "Oh yeah, this is old news." But I want to the fancy theology word for this is the doctrine of intercession. Okay, intercession. In the past, let's get into it a little bit. People of God, every sin that was done required a sacrifice. Okay, so we read about this all the time in Old Testament. Whoever the priest was at that time had to continually do so until they passed away, and then the next priest would step up, and then the next priest would step up, and they would continue the constant work, okay? But read this, or hear this, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, this is the NIV. Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely, or to the uttermost, is one of my favorite translations, Uh, Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Man, think about this, okay? In general, most of us, our our Christian theology, we could all probably land on these points. All have sinned. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus took our penalty of death for us, so now we're justified because of Christ. That's what he did for us, okay? Okay? In general, I think we can all agree with that. Then we know someday at some time that only God knows we will be with God in some new heavenly realm that may or may not look like earth, but a thousand times better because there will be no sin, no sadness, no fear, no death, etc. Okay, that, We could probably generally agree on that. But one huge aspect of our theology that often gets missed and it can be brought out with this question, but what is Jesus doing right now? Between, between the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, what is Jesus doing right now? Now, I want to recommend a book that actually Randall and I are both reading and talking about. It's just a fantastic book, but it's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Highly recommend it. Just a fantastic book. Um, but Ortland actually talks about this intercession a lot. He gives examples where intercession is like a parent between a teacher and a student, Okay? Or another example, if you're more sports inclined, it's an agent representing an athlete to a sports franchise. Okay? So it's kind of this mediator in between. So briefly, on the cross, full atonement happened for sins. Okay? We didn't contribute it, and we can't outsave Christ with our right action today. So now, through humble proclamation that Jesus is the one and only Savior, we are entered into this new creation life where we are being made new. Okay? Our sin cannot undo what Christ did, but we still sin, don't we? Right? There's still sin in our lives. We are constant sinners under the constant salvation of Jesus. And as long as there is still sin in us, then Christ is interceding for us before the Father. That's how much he saved you and me completely and to the uttermost, completely and uttermost. Orland has this to say, in his book, our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost, and his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. So, for John to quell the false teaching, the goal is not to, to the goal is not to not have sin. That's actually God's goal. He's the one who's going to take away sin, not you but to confess our sins continually to Jesus who already atoned it. And then in that, to no longer be slaves to those sins. Here's what happens, to get back to John, if we don't acknowledge or confess our sin. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Who's the him in this line? God, right? If the false teaching is that those who have the proper knowledge and understanding of spiritual matters are sinless, then they have no sin in them, then any redemptive work of Christ is meaningless, and he was not the savior of the world. right? Any attempt for God to show us our iniquity iniquity is actually deception. That would make God the great deceiver. And everything the law and the prophets have been building up to are all fruitless and vain. I know it's weird to say, It's weird to say, but it's actually realizing our sin that brings validation and vindication for the story of the scriptures, right? The reason for Jesus, the reason for the cross, and the unfathomable grace of the resurrection is because there is still sin, and here, as we enter into the first two verses of chapter two now, we see this hinge where chapter two actually completes chapter one, but it also will point us forward as we go in the next couple of weeks. But here, what I want to talk about is the second uh, big doctrine of theology that I'd like to talk about today is advocacy, okay? So we talked about intercession, this mediator, and the second one is advocacy, okay? You guys still with me? Yeah, if anyone needs coffee, feel free. So now there's a difference between intercession of Christ and the advocacy of Christ. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, first off, please don't be turned off or angry at John for calling us little children, okay? He's not trying to, you know, talk us down. Remember uh, later in 2nd and 3rd John, he refers to himself as the elder, and then he's writing to the church or the elect lady and her children. Okay, which for a lot of uh, commentaries, a lot of scholars, this is code language to the church. Okay, the elect children, or the elect lady and her children. So John wants to make something very clear here. Everything we just walked through, recognizing our sin, confessing our sin, understanding that even though we are saved, there is still sin. This is not justification to continue in sin. Okay, he's he's right. Remember, our sin is just reminders that we are in need of a Savior and that Savior is Jesus Christ. John wants to make sure to his readers and to us today, he's not promoting sin. Okay, because that goes back to Romans now. Well, what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? But John actually says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, this is number three. I think we get out of this confidence or the fruit of walking the light is confidence in Jesus Christ as our advocate and our atonement. Now, I want to talk about advocate for, for a second and how it's different than intercessor. Again, I want to look to Ortland's book. He wrote it so much brilliantly that I could ever say it. He writes, intercession has the idea of mediating between two parties, bringing them together. Advocacy is similar but has the idea of aligning oneself with another. An intercessor stands between two parties. An advocate doesn't simply stand in between the two parties, but he steps over and joins the one party as he approaches the other. Do you understand? Get the difference a little bit? Christ is constantly with us, in our corner, feeling what we feel, and not just representing us, but covering us with himself. It's like the ultimate puppy dog eyes to the Father, right? How can he do that? Because he covers over our sin. How can he cover over sin like that? Because he is the righteous. There is no darkness found in him. Okay, we look to other New Testament writers to write things. This is why Paul can write in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he writes again in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there you go. Redeemed, born-again Christians now have no condemnation in the confession of sins because of Christ Jesus the righteous. But often there is this feeling of judgment, isn't there? If we just talk humanly now, There's this feeling, there's this dirtiness of sin, the consequences of fracturing what was once good. And there is one who would love nothing more than to keep you down in the depth of your sin. There is one who has made it their life goal to heap shame upon shame where there is sin. And this being, this one, we usually call Satan, okay? Typically, that's the name, the proper name that we give this name, the, the name that has been used of the devil forever. But do you know what Satan means? Right, much like Christ is not actually Jesus' last name, Right, Christ means Savior, Satan means adversary. Adversary or accuser. And wouldn't you know it? You can even look in our dictionary. It's not even a Bible thing. If you look up the antonym or opposite of advocate, do you know what comes up? Adversary. Okay? F- literally functioning as fault finder or accuser. Okay, first, or Peter, in his letter to 1 Peter, he puts it this way. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? This is the great consequence of sin. It's not just the lie that God will finally be done with you, you've done too much, but that the adversary, the accuser now, has fuel and reason to bring you down into the depths of of shame and guilt. Paul, he warns this in Ephesians 4.27. He says, do not give the devil a foothold because once he has something, he can lock onto it, right? That, this is the power of lies, of shame and our sin, that voice that tell you, tells you it's a fact. You start to believe this, that your sin is keeping God from loving you or keeping you from feeling close to God. Your sin is too much, and now God can't even look at you. You are too much for God's goodness, but that is not the truth. That is not the truth, right? If there is a repentance, which there is always a chance for, then there is no condemnation from Christ Jesus. He is interceding so that our relationship with God will never change because it's not based on us. He envelops the sinful parts of you and I so that we would become the righteousness of Of God. Is that not mind-blowing? That's crazy. Now, real quick, we've been looking at this in the New Testament with John, but years before, way back ago, if you will go with me to the Old Testament for a second, there's a really cool scene written as a vision back in Zechariah. Real briefly, Zechariah, to get us into context, was a prophet used to encourage the downtrodden Jews who were coming out of exile in Babylon were now returning to rebuild the temple of the Lord, but it was so hard to do the work not knowing the glory that was going to come, not knowing if it was actually going to work. Well, Zechariah has these visions of the coming glory with what will be if they follow and obey the Lord and continue in rebuilding the Lord's temple. He sees this about the great high priest Joshua, who would later be symbolic for all the Israelite people. Let me read this to you. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a scene, right? Standing there in filthy garments with the accuser flinging fault And shame. But the Lord, the great advocate, rebukes the accuser on his behalf. Is this not the remnant removed from the fire of judgment that I am making new? And this is the powerful line I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, take that, right? This is not just a New Testament concept. This is what the people of God have known for a long time. And then go, this is what John is talking about here if anyone does sin the adversary takes advantage and heaps on insults and shame but the advocate steps in and takes away the grounds for any of that shame the sin is forgiven there is no longer grounds for shame and how can he do this 1 john 2:2 2, 2. he is the propitiation for our sins weird word hard to say propitiation means something offered for atonement or something offered in exchange for and it's usually used in terms to a deity or to a god it's actually not a, just a bible word it's a generic spiritual word okay it's crazy how this is written though look at it when think about it when regular worshipers come to their deity of church or sorry deity of choice <laughs> It's usually the worshiper who makes atonement for their sins because, and to make amends to their deity, right? But John flips this. Jesus, God made flesh, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He takes our side. He becomes our sin to be the atonement in himself. So when sin occurs, the advocate steps in as the atonement for the sin, completely removing the sin, and thus is no longer anything that reasons for condemnation. But this is why it can't just be done by anyone. right? The atonement actually is Jesus himself. It's not just something Jesus does. He literally is the exchange, and he died for it. Jesus died because he stood as our advocate. And that makes his resurrection even more incredible because that what death should have consumed and then still kept coming after us, he defeated death. So now every time death, because sin leads to death, death comes for us, he steps in with a power to overcome and defeat it. It's wild to think about Jesus's constant advocacy for us and the end of verse two, and where we'll end today, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This blows up any power sin has over the whole world. This is why God can make all things new. Because the very sources of the fracture of God's good earth has been dealt with. Putting back the pieces now in God's good earth, or as the New Testament writers call it, reconciling all things is now possible because of the advocacy of Christ Jesus. And church, this is the comfort John is establishing. That today... When I sin, today, when you sin, there is confidence that Jesus is always interceding for us. But also today, he is our greatest advocate. He is interceding always. If you sin, he is your advocate. Intercession is forever constant. Advocacy is constantly when is needed. And as incredible as all that is, we have to be careful because we can just throw up our hands and, at sin and, and minimize it and it's not look at its profound destruction that it can have in our lives. And for the last time I'll quote Ortland again. Again, just please get this book. It's so good because we can't miss the application of this. He says, "Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who was already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds." let your own righteousness and all or your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ the righteous in all his brightness and sufficiency guys we are so covered by grace it's ridiculous that we're afraid to come to the father with our own faults i get it i'm afraid too but it's kind of ridiculous right any fear that we have has to be man made by bad experiences with earthly fathers or mothers or authorities in our life Whatever the case is, because you look at these scriptures and Jesus in every way makes it possible for complete salvation. You and me are living out this kind of cosmic courtroom drama all the time, right? Jesus, our advocate, is with us before the Father enveloping our sins so that we could stand before the Father and the accuser as the righteous. And it's based on nothing you and I did other than repent and surrender to Jesus, the righteous one. Now this is super fascinating. We'll be done in a few in a few seconds. and just more of a side note, but it's still relevant. We have this advocate in the Lord, but what about before and after all this happens, right? What about in the temptation and the aftermath of being washed new again? It's almost like we need a helper or, or a counselor or someone just all the time, Oh, yeah, John 14, let's look at this. 14:26. Jesus is telling his own followers, but the helper. You know what other translations are that? Advocate, comforter, counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So now circling back out of this co- courtroom drama, we get back to John. Okay? And as he's writing this, he's, he's urging the church, and this is it for us today. I'm writing these things to you. So that you just don't go down that sinful path. Flee towards purity as fast as you can. The Spirit will aid you and remind you and convict you towards walking in the light. But when you fail, if sin happens, realize it has no power or hold over you because of Christ's forever atonement. But also that you have the great advocate of Jesus, the righteous one, standing in your place to pronounce you clean once more. Our tendency is going to be to self-advocate, to self-judge for ourselves, how to fix our life, or even look to alternate ways to find salvation. John is saying, don't go there. It's all in vain. Run to the righteous one. You can come to him freely because he already came to you. And this is the result, or the fruit that results in walking in the light. Fellowship with one another the cleansing and forgiveness of our sins and greater worship and understanding of the complete salvation by Jesus Christ. This is the God we worship. That is the King Jesus who does not accuse you of sin, but redeems you out of that darkness and makes you new to walk in the light. And it's this newness that gives us the confidence to be a people who can walk in the light. In the next few weeks, we're going to unpack more of what walking in the light means in our lives. But now, to finish up, I believe there's power that can awaken in us. Actually, if we reread today's passage with a deeper understanding of the reality of actually walking in the light, that darkness is not all there is. The sins and struggles we all have, they don't have to rule over us. They actually have no power. So actually, if you would stand with me, I want to read our passage again one last time, and then we'll pray, and we will respond to this great God that we have. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If you want to read aloud, you can. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen? Amen. Let's respond today. But to this great God, communion will be open Uh, during the music, and let's worship to our God today. Let me pray. Let's do that.